Hi, this is Don King, editor of A Naked Tree. Love sonnets to C.S. Lewis and other poems by Joy Davidman. And you're listening to Pints with Jack. It is because every one of them wants to be a little Oyarsa himself. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 18, Gods and Monsters, Out of the Silent Planet, Chapters 16. Welcome everyone here on Pints with Jack. We're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm Matt and I am joined by my two delightful co-hosts, Andrew and David. This season, we find ourselves among the stars reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. In this episode, that quote of the week, I mean, we're going to get in here a bit of a summary on the human race, and I think this is one of the most profound sentences that sums everything up. So get ready, everyone, for a great episode. But before we dive in, the movie title, we called it Gods and Monsters. Andrew called it that, to be yeah. more accurate. Yeah, I was really stuck as to what to call today's episode because there were some themes, but I couldn't think of any good movie. And we were spitballing just before we hit record and Andrew came in clutch. Titles are what I do. Um, I have made a career with the C.S. Lewis Foundation. When I help them name their events, they invite me to speak at them. <laughs> and speaking of which, we, Kristen and I have just been confirmed for the October 13th C.S. Lewis Retreat at Camp Allen, Texas in October mm. 13th through 15th. So so yes, happy to help out with titles and I won't even charge you all this time. <laughs> Andrew, 30 seconds, what would you call Pints with Jack if it wasn't called Pints with Jack? Uh, I don't know. Batesian rigidity in your ears. <laughs> yeah. We uh, thought about doing like a tea with Tolkien, lattes with Lewis. Kristen and I thought about doing something like that and then Somebody swiped that title. Okay. We're keeping it as Pints with Jack. Yeah. Rabbit Room is taken. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, just in case Pints with Aquinas ever gets super mad at us and we need to do a pivot. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is ours. We have squatters' rights at this point. We've been here long enough. I agree. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, before we jump into the, the uh, drink, how have you guys been? I've been pretty well. On Saturday, Shane Hull, who's an uh, Instagram friend, he does the... Um, What's it called? The Curious Quote, uh, I think. I'll have to look that up. Uh, reached out to me on Facebook. He's a fan of the of the podcast. And uh, we got together for breakfast, had a marvelous time. And then Kristen was out of town. So I invited him back to the house and we uh, had a dram from, from Barfield's Decanter. And we I showed him all kinds of all the books and just had marvelous good talk. So yeah, good stuff. It's commonplace quote. Commonplace quote. Yes. Sorry, Shane. <laughs> and he sent me this marvelous book a few days later um, on like the Middle Eastern approach to Luke chapter 15. So there's all kinds of insights into the prodigal son based on Middle Eastern culture. And it's just fascinating uh, conversation. Just it was a golden session and what a good guy. So shout out to Shane. <laughs> well, as for me, my good news is I now have a new job. I will be starting Yay. it in four weeks which means I have a little bit of time to play catch up on all of the thousand one things that I've been neglecting while I've been on a very intensive job hunt. 
and also I will be going to the Chicago performance by Ballet 5.8 of Bareface, their oh. adaptation of Do We Have Faces. And I've oh. already started having messages from patron supporters who are also going to be there. And fun fact, my new work, or at least The Office, I won't be going in. I'll be going in once a quarter, uh, is about five minutes away from that theater because they're based in Chicago. Mm. Oh, fantastic. Which Excellent. means I'm going to get to go to Chicago once a quarter. And what else is in ah. Chicago? The Wade Center. The Wade Center. Yeah. <laughs> the Hallow Guys. Yeah. And so, Dr. David and Crystal Downing, you're about to meet your new best friend because I'm going to be there a lot. <laughs> Well, and Marge Mead and uh, and the fantastic Laura Schmidt. Um, so, yeah. Oh, you'll never get to the bottom of those resources. You'll be getting married soon. Congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so sad that I won't be able to make the ballet. I'm going to be speaking the day before and the day after. And it absolutely didn't work out, um, which is uh, a big tragedy for me. But I'm I'm hoping to get maybe a couple of weeks at the Wade Center. And then also got tickets to Further Up and Further In in Jacksonville, Florida on May 6th on a Saturday. So if any of our uh, folks are going to be in Jacksonville, come say hi. Krista and I are going to take a little weekend and up we go. So please give my very best at the ballet. I'm just, ah, yeah, it kills me. Before we record the next episode, I'll offer my own interpretation through movement of what they did on the stage. Okay. So you won't miss anything. I'll offer my interpretation of the, uh, the ending of Oedipus. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, that's that a pretty uh, literary joke. It means I'll poke my eyes out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that went way over my head. I was already moving on to the drink of the week, you know, the best part ah, of the good. show. Yeah. Let's do well, I'm, I'm celebrating, so I'm drinking Laphroaig. That's easy. Ah, nice. I tapped back into a, uh, I forgot that I had bought around Christmas, maybe even a year ago Christmas, not this past one. Like one of those advent calendars of 24 different little daily ones. These these tiny things. I still have honestly 20 left because (laughs) (laughs) we only had four episodes when I bought it in December and I just forgot about it. So I'm going to be drinking a 16 year Mortlach. And if Andrew brings up to it faces a lot, I will be then going to a 13-year <laughs> inch fad. Oh, good. Well, I'll try to bring up Lewis's best book, um, Till We Have Faces, because there's lots of resonances with this chapter. And she does a lot of drinking. There's some drinking that happens mm. until we have faces, um, as well as a fair bit of walking, too. So I'm ready for it. <laughs> well, I uh, I was not feeling all that great when we recorded, but um, I'm feeling better now. And so I'm catching up. I only have one slot left in my happy birthday, you know, sampler from Oxford. So I'm drinking the Ben Rennes and uh, we'll see how that goes. Well, beautiful. Well, this week, gentlemen, we are going to be toasting, saying cheers in Thai. Mm-hmm. And that is going to be Chon Kao. Chon Kao. Yes. Chon Kao. Great. John Cow. So yes, Andrew, let's get our toast to our top tier Patreon supporter. Well, we uh, happily toast Gary Jacobella. And uh, as we round our way towards Easter, uh, we pray that uh, all of the blessings of God's new life will come to you and to your family. And we thank you for your kindness towards us. Cheers. Uh, I'm John Cow. John Cow. <laughs> John Cow. Hmm. Oh. Earthy. That's quite delicious. That's got a little kind of a maple finish there. Well, Matthew, it is that time again. 
We gave it a break for a few weeks, but it is now time for philology so far. Oh, I thought we were done with this. So I have seven questions with 10 points available in total. So question one, what is the name for Earth and what does it mean? And this is Earth, the planet. Oh, I was, I was going to say the ground. Tholchandra is high the planet. Okay, two points so far. What are the names for the lowlands and the highlands? And which is which? You can't just say both. <laughs> oh, I know this. Handramit. And which one's that? <laughs> Alexander doesn't like your pausing. Lowlands. <laughs> that is the lowlands. And what is the highlands? Handresa. <laughs> Harandra. <I'm> guessing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, three points so far. Randra. Uh, here's here's a, a good way to catch up on points. What are the three races we've heard about on Malacandra? Sorns, Rasa, Pfiffitigrilli. <laughs> oh, I don't know. We might have to give him that Fifitigri. one. Fifitigri. Fiffle. 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 Triggy. Fiffle. Triggy. It's kind of like, you know, um, uh, being a respectabagel. A fiffle would get a little. A fifth will get a little tricky if you tried to drink it during an episode. David, what's the name of the fourth one that ceases in existence? Well, we'll find that out today. They're actually not named. Mm. That's correct. I call them the bird-like thingies. Mm -hmm. The bird-like thingies. Uh, the, for those of you that watch uh, Rick and Morty, I just think of bird person. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm going to give you half on that one. So three and a half. <laughs> what do you call a group of people who kill a hanakra? Warriors. <laughs> oh, Nakrapunti. There we go. Okay, still on three and a half. Oh, you wanted it in the language. Oh, oh sorry. Yes, I should have specified. <laughs> yes. Oh. That Batesian specificity. Mm-hmm. Arbolhru refers to gold, but what does it literally mean? The the blood of gods. Oh, uh, the blood of the sun. There you the blood go. Of the sun. Boom. Sun's blood. You got to yes. get it in the order. Oh, no. I speak Spanish. I'll take it. United States <laughs> is one of the few places that doesn't say the other way around. Okay. So four and a half points. Uh, let's see if we can pull ahead to a passing mark. When Ransom learned about God, what were the two names used? These identified two different people. Melodil the Young. Yes. And there was another. I know this one. <laughs> if you think about it in Trinitarian terms, which person of the Godhead is it? It's the father. Mm -hmm. And in earthly terms, a father is, what, what, what is a father called, Andrew? An elder. And in this case, the old one. The old one, yes. Mm. All right, for bonus points. Uh, and uh, I, if, you, if you give a really good answer, I'm going to push you over to a passing mark. What does Hanau mean? Oh. It's like the sentient creatures, conscious creatures. Like the man. Man is the technical term, but like. Oh, that's that was a pretty good answer. I'll allow it. Uh, <laughs> each, each, each of the creatures that we've encountered thus far uh, of, the, of the main races have been Hanau. And we also saw that it seems to have something also to do with virtue. But mm -hmm. it hasn't been specified yet, so uh, why don't oh, we push yeah. into today's text 
and you give us the 100-word summary of the story so far. Yes. Ransom, kidnapped from Earth and taken to the planet Malachandra to be given to the Sorns. He escapes his captors and lives for some time among another race, the Harasa. Together with his friends Hyoi and Huin, Ransom kills a water monster. But Hyoi is soon shot by Ransom's abductors. Huin sends Ransom to Oyarsa, sending him over the highlands to meet Augre along the way. When Ransom meets Augre, he discovers that he is the creature he has long feared, a Sorn. Until we learn dun, 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 a little dun, dun, bit dun. this chapter. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> so we kick it off right there. He is now woken up in this cave with Augre. They had finished the last chapter, if you remember, staring down at Thulchandra. And there was just this, the bleakest moment. We had a nice little con- conversation on what it means to be, why he said it was one of the bleakest moments in his journey. And we had some speculation on that. So we pick it up right there. He wakes up. So, gentlemen, as he wakes up with this sorn around after his bleakest moment, how is he feeling? It's morning. He's feeling a bit better. <laughs> We're back to halt again when Ransom is tired and hungry. And sometimes he just needs some food, a drink, and a good nap. Yes. Uh, and the text says he awoke the next morning with a vague feeling that a great weight had been taken off his mind. Now, he's recognizing the goodness of the Cerrone, or at least this particular one doesn't seem to you know, want to eat his flesh. Although it is kind of cute because you still find out that he still prefers the Rosa. He still think he still prefers them. He doesn't have quite the same affection for the Cerrone just yet. Well, and I was thinking about that. I think he has uh, more Storgi for the Rasa because, by its very nature, Storgi takes time. Mm-hmm. Right? It takes time to become familiar. It's you feel much more affection for a high school that you went to for all four years than one that you went to for just a year. And so, of course, he he. It prefers the the Rasa. It's, that's where he spent all the time. I imagine if he started out with the Sor- the Cerrone, he would have had the same kind of affection for them. So I think that's one of the one of the elements of that love is that it just it grows it grows just just by spending time together. Hmm. Now Ransom is actually still plagued by fears of Oyasa because this is the last personal group because he's still not quite sure what Oyasa is. But this is the last creature on Malacandra that he knows about uh, that he hasn't met. And he's therefore still kind of scared. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking of my new favorite phrase that was from the Jerry Root conversation, reality as iconoclastic. Because this is just another example. It describes that he was thinking to himself his greatest fear or top three, let's say maybe, was the Sorns. And then he actually uses the word amicable. Mm. to describe their nature. And so it's like he's confronted with the reality, not what the falsehood in his head. And it destroys these preconceived notions that he has. I mean, I think about that in today's day and age, whenever we have all this division and divisiveness, whenever you just meet with a person who has different values, different views in you, different faith, different denomination, different story, your preconceived notions of them tend to be challenged. A lot of times we villainize people and then we meet them and we're like, oh, you know what? They're just lovely human beings like everyone else trying to do the best they can in life. 
you know, that's the nicely observed amicable, um, because of course the root of that is friend. And so mm. here is this thing, this creature with whom he has actually in some ways more in common than the Rosa. And so it's an amicable meeting. And yes, it has the surface meaning of that, but it means that it suggests, I think, at least the potential of friendship between the two. So yeah, nice grab. Thank you, Andrew. Feels good every once in a while. You know, every blind squirrel gets a nut once in a while. Nah, 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 nah. Um, yeah, and and anybody who's going to cite Jerry Root favorably is is on the good list. I stand on the shoulders of giants, as does Ransom. This uh, this chapter. So, I think too that having gotten some rest, like David pointed out, but also he has decided towards uh, kind of faithful obedience. And even that decision can bring life. And so that's some of, I think, why he's, mm -hmm. he's feeling a little bit better about things. Well, now they're sharing breakfast and Ransom asks Algray how he'll find his way to Oyarsa. And Algray says that he will carry Ransom. And then at the same time, so we're about to go on this journey or continue the journey might be a better way to phrase this, throws a bit of shade at the Harasa in here. And so as we <laughs> unpack this section... First, I actually want to start out and ask you guys, did this section at all, when he's getting on the back of the uh, Sorn, remind you at all of Lewis's greatest work, The Great Divorce? I'm sorry, you need to read the notes, please. <laughs> <laughs> you changed it. <laughs> Let me rephrase what the notes now say uh, under Matt's section. Does this remind you all of our favorite, David's and my favorite work, The Great Divorce? Oh, our... Uh, our includes you yeah doesn't doesn't say andrew there he finally admits it people no it's till we have faces <laughs> I, not particularly are you thinking of like the lizard on the man's shoulder not exactly more thinking about they get to a point in their journey where they can't continue on their own they won't be able to handle the atmosphere mm. uh. the, the, uh, the surroundings to get to the end goal they need the help of something more substantial and so you have the sorn here who is given and, I, and, I, and i'm putting it into context of the bigger journey where i talked i won't unpack everything i mentioned last episode but how there was obedience and surrender to it and continuing to unknown and to uncertainty and there's grace provided along the way but now he's to a point where he can't continue without even further help from Wayarsa, and I'm just taking of our own spiritual journey from God and the need of uh, someone further along in the journey to to help us. So I guess that's what I was thinking. You know, I'll grant you that um, here's this thing that he loathed, kind of like the, the red lizard, and it transforms into being something that he can ride who, that gets mm. him further along. But that's kind of a just an, an incidental parallel. The true, the true thing is that he has climbed up the mountain and grappled within himself, and unlike Orwal, has decided to embrace <laughs> um, thoughtfulness and faith. And so he has clearer vision in a way that Orwal doesn't. So what Lewis is doing here at the beginning of his fiction is setting up a contrast at the end of his fiction, just further showing the brilliance not only of Lewis's fictional writing, but the fact that he brings everything to a close with his last and best <laughs> novel, Till We Have Faces. Bring it, guys. I got it for all day. I got it all day. That was slow clap worthy. That just somehow bait and switch. I mean, you literally, you took it and you switched it and threw it back at me. No, it just was always there. You just, you know, anything that you tee up is going to, you know, end up, um, end up being where it needs to be. 
Well, speaking about throwing shade at people, uh, I want to talk about <laughs> the th the shade that he throws at the Harossa. Yes. First of all, it made me laugh, by the way. Oh, it's kind of funny. I literally yeah. put LOL. <laughs> <laughs> but the Sorn says they don't seem to know from looking at Tan what sort of lungs it has and what it can do. It is just like a Harossa. If you died on the Harandra, they would have made a poem about the gallant man and how the sky grew black and the cold stars shone and he journeyed on and on. And they would have put in a fine speech for you as you were lay there dying. And all this would have seemed to them just as good as, as if they had used a little forethought and saved your life by sending you the easier way round. <laughs> it's funny, but is it strictly fair? I mean, this route was chosen for speed. Quinn knew that there was another way around. And we know from everything that's been said that the Horosa have been this route before and that they can get help uh, from this Sorn. So it does seem a little unfair. I think it would be a, a fair guess that a man would be able to make this journey if a Horos could. Hmm. Well, and I wonder if it's maybe just some friend friendly interspecies rivalry, kind of a rolling our eyes at, oh boy, you know, that one does this. And I imagine that uh, that the Harasa could say the same thing of the Cerrone. Hmm. I think the caricature probably is true um, when they have this discussion about death afterwards, because Ransom is a little offended on the part of his friends. It says, mm -hmm. I like the Harasa, said Ransom a little stiffly. And I think the way they talk about death is the right way. <laughs> and Orgray doesn't disagree with their attitude. It's just that they lack prudence and forethought. And he says mm -hmm. that they do not seem to look at death reasonably as part of the very nature of our bodies and therefore often avoidable at times when they would never see how to avoid it. So they're, they're kind mm -hmm. of like Klingons. They're, they're sometimes a little bit cheap with their lives mm -hmm. if they can be a, a, good, uh, a good poem out of it. Hmm. Well, what do you guys, David, you, you use the word prudence and forethought. I'm curious your guys' thoughts because my brain went to the association of there's modern day Christians that you'll meet. And I'm sort of enviable of this disposition. They have a similar disposition where there's just an utter, and I'm going to use the word naive, but that's just because I, I don't have a better one, like surrender to God. We're against sometimes logical stuff. So they'll you've met those people where they're literally like, well, God will just provide. And sometimes like my brain is like, well, he's providing by the, the rational brain saying that this is probably not a good choice and you should do this. But mm. yet for those individuals, it always works out <laughs> like, <laughs> because it's almost like God will make, will honor that incredible surrender, even in the face of like low odds. And so I'm just kind of curious. It's, uh, I, I don't know why I thought of that here other than the fact that it's like they just thought, oh, well, if I die, I die. If you don't, you don't. God's there, whatever. It's all fine or yours is there and you just go that way. And if not, we'll make a poem. Like there's just this utter surrender and trust. Hmm. An abandonment to divine providence. Yeah. And I wish I had it, honestly. Part of what strikes me about you know hearing these kind of interracial relations between them, uh, multiracial whatever, Triracial relations is that the three races really kind of need each other on Malacandra, and there's a kind mm -hmm. of harmony with all three of them. And one could not say that they didn't need the other two, um, based on what we've heard so far. In my mere Christianity class at church, we just started book four of mere Christianity, uh, or book four beyond personality, talking about the Holy Trinity. And I wonder if, because of its at least less fallen nature, the racial relationships in Malacandra doesn't in some ways represent the Holy Trinity, right? 
it's one planet, but it's made up of three races. Now, it's a bad analogy, just like any other analogy for the <laughs> for the incomprehensible trinity. But if if humans are Christ's body, perhaps mitochondrians re reflect God's tr trinitarian nature just in the way that there are three races that work together. I know the um, mm. the the past race may throw throw a wrench in that, but <laughs> it's usually Matt grasp, grasping for the big uh, for the big dogma for the big theological point. Uh, so it's it's my turn to overreach. You know, I really what I heard from what you were saying there, Andrew. Too is the kingdom needs individuals that will, and I, and, I, and this is an incorrect language. I, I don't have the perfect word, but almost irrationally surrender in the face of all the odds. To divine will but then there's also a role for sometimes someone to like speak rationality into a situation and those can all work together to build a harmonious community you know one body many parts mm -hmm. there, there's you know i might meet someone and they're just god will provide god will provide god will provide i'm like oh i think he might be providing with my brain telling you that this isn't going to work out and you should go this way <laughs> and and then he that person will help me because I'll, I'll overdo that too much or i'll constantly rationalize everything and so maybe there's just like this beautiful thing where all these different ways of engaging the kingdom and engaging the divine will and surrendering all can work together in beautiful harmony mm. Mm. i think i would place more emphasis on the body of christ comparison rather than the trinity mm. because of the question questions of need uh, that they need each other whereas the trinity they share the same substance so i don't think you could put it quite in the same way but more importantly in this section i can't believe we haven't spoken about this uh, we're told Orgray gave ransom food and drink for breakfast were they drinking alcohol in the morning because we haven't heard of another kind of drink so far it's a mimosa <laughs> there you go there you go <laughs> yes <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a it's not the blood of the sun. It's the uh, it's like the I don't know the liquid of the gods or something. <laughs> I'm not sure if they're drinking alcohol necessarily, but you know perhaps. Just saying, we haven't heard anything else mentioned thus far. <laughs> Maybe it's a pure form, in the sense that alcohol has the fallen form. Alcohol has some very negative effects and can be dangerously abused substance and you wake up and there's a pro and a con. But in a non-fallen world, it's like it warms them up. It gives them life. It gives them like it does all the good of alcohol, but it doesn't seem like there's any of the negative. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's 5 p.m. on the hand it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting seeing as they begin to make their preparations to, to leave. Ransom shudders because Orgray passes him the tube that contains the oxygen that's going to keep him alive during the journey. And Ransom shudders because still because of the different nature of this creature. Uh, his hands are described as fan-shaped, seven-fingered. Uh, and a lot of artificial intelligence images are out at the moment of uh, that are computer generated and it freaks people out when they have more than five fingers. Uh, but fan shaped, seven fingers, mere skin over bone like a bird's leg and quite cold. And I think that does speak to our training again. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if Ransom would shudder quite so readily if he had maybe kept pigeons or chickens and had been used to uh, feeling affection for creatures with that kind of a hand. Hmm. I wish I had something better to respond, David. I just like the observation. Yeah. And, you know, I think that some of what's happening is he's grappling with some fear and there's certainly some fear of the unfamiliar. And so 
he's only just arrived at a place where the the Hrasa are not, you know, kind of terrifying to him that they that they seem like people. And so Sereni. Well, no, before with the Hrasa. Oh, so okay. now he's mm-hmm. he's grappling with the with the next species that he's come come up into an <laughs> encounter with. I would love to have seen what his adventures would be like if he had five years, you know, and a year and a half with each of the races, um, mm-hmm. and then you know another uh, some more time with Oyarsa and the Eldola. And I think that he would have been a much more well rounded individual and probably not so spooked uh, at the first encounter with something new. You know, we see here David speaking of that he's provided this oxygen machine. So not only does he get the help of the Sorn, but he also really gets very direct help from the divine of this oxygen type device that was made by the Fiffletriggy. Yay. Nice. Very nice. There you go. (laughs) Fiffletriggy. I know I keep bringing it back to this, but it just, there's been a lot of chapters I've loved in this book because I think Lewis Going through it slowly, I've realized how much wisdom Lewis is mixing into this. But isn't there just such an incredible wisdom of, you know, you look at this whole journey that he's been on, God provides, I'm using God for Oyarsa, but just the, the I'm mm-hmm. making them interchangeable here. But also Oyarsa isn't God, just reiterating that. True. It's Meleldil and the old one. So the, the, the divine providence via his sub-creatures and him slash her, whoever this creature is, every step of the way you look back, like he's been provided for. And I just think in our own journey, we all know our struggles. We all know our vices. We all know where we need to be. We all know our journey. We all, and yet, do we really trust God will genuinely provide, genuinely at a core of our being, that joyful mm. disposition of a Christian? I am so far from it. I'm not even like an eight out of 10 or a six out of 10. I'm like a two out of 10. <laughs> Of believing that. Who is it that's ranking you, at Matthew? Me. Mm, there you go. <laughs> but it's so true. God's got to be looking down. Like, I mean, I've had priests tell me multiple times, you need to work on your like self-sufficiency when I talk to them in the confessional and get kind of vulnerable and stuff. And they, they sense it. Like, I've always depend on myself. It's just my nature. And I don't know. This is just another example. I know this is a minor thing that I just turned into something beyond it again, but it's just another example. He's in this thin air, hard to breathe, hard to continue, wouldn't be able to make on himself, would probably die. There's a sorn, there's oxygen. He's going to get through this. If he, if you're doing God's will, <laughs> it will work out. That doesn't mean it'll work out the way you think it will work out. And death could actually end up being the end goal of all of it. But like, it will work out as the good Lord expects. Well, and in the lectionary recently, we've been reading about the children of Israel. And it's like they get out of Israel and they're like, oh, you brought us here to kill us. It's like, yeah, I'm going to open the waters. Oh, you brought us here to to starve us to death. Here's some manna. Oh, we're so thirsty. What's going to happen now? Here's some water. Oh, man, we want a barbecue. Okay, get a barbecue. Right? And I think in some ways it's the same with us. How long will we will it take before we realize that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory, right? And what if we never realize it? Well, you might not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it, 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 that that kind of dependency. And Lewis says that that dependency, trust, our, our trust in God has to start all over every day, um, mm-hmm. you know, and begin begin once again. And so here's Ransom, and we're starting to go, hey, dude, God's going to provide for you. And um, and it's still kind of up in the air. So, Do you know the one thing I do trust? 
Hmm. I haven't trusted the surrender yet to God's will. But I trust that I do desire to get to that state in my obstinance will mm-hmm. be overcome by him. It just will be 10 times more painful. Like, <laughs> I don't know what the rock bottom is going to be for me and my ego. Like, think of an addict. I mean, I'm an addict of my own self-sufficiency. I mean, genuinely an addict's journey you could use to describe my own journey. Except it's an addict of self-sufficiency, an addict of ego, whatever you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. And it, I do actually genuinely trust God will break it. Mm. I just know the longer I cling to it, the more painful that process is going to be before I hit the point of like, okay, enough is enough, time to let it go. Sometimes mm-hmm. that scares me to thought of what that's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Well, your comments about self-sufficiency and the imagery that you just drew upon there naturally makes me think of the great divorce. Please take a sip of your drink. <laughs> <Yes. sighs> Reach a little higher, David. Reach a little higher. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Le- lean on those who are around you that will help. Uh, lead you further up and further in. Yes, because another bore nearly all the suffering. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, Touché. Well that was that Touché. was a good one. Reach uh, higher, brothers. You can get there. I'll help. <laughs> but but as I was saying that, I was thinking about the the way in which the different uh, different races of Malacandra help one another, and we haven't met them yet. But I can tell you now, the question of the week when we meet the Fifth Triggy will be: If you had to assign a Malacandrian race to each of the co-hosts of Pints with Jack, which would they be? Ooh, whoa, that's a good. Oh, question. easy. No, 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 no discussion. We will deal with this okay. when we uh, encounter the oh. Fifth Triggy. Because oh, we have right. to find okay. out how awesome they are, first of all. Hint. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the Harasa going into battle against the Hakra. Let's hope that the Harasa don't go into battle against the Hakra Punti. Fighting amongst themselves. That's a tough one. I mean, it really is. We know I'm not a Sorn. That's the only thing we can say with conviction. We will deal with this when we deal with the Fiffle Tricky. <laughs> and speaking of the Fiffle Triggy, Ransom actually presses uh, Orgray as to where this oxygen machine came from. Mm. And he issues the line, well, we thought it, they built it. And we find out that the Fiffle Triggy actually like making stuff. Because Ransom is still looking for some grand conspiracy as to who's manipulating whom, who is really in charge. And Orgray says, no, the Fiffle Triggy really like making stuff. They They seem to prefer artistic endeavors uh, rather Mm. than uh, utilitarian. But if they're really bored and the problem is suitably difficult, if it's going to provide enough of a challenge for them, they will do it. (laughs) Which just sums up for me that these guys are the engineers of this planet. Mm -hmm. They don't just want a challenge. They want a challenge that they deem worthy of themselves. Hmm. I like your way way, way to just push that forward, Bates. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. (laughs) So, gentlemen. Hamat. (laughs) Hamat <laughs> Hi Andrew <laughs> So gentlemen we're pressing forward So now he's Ransom is sitting on the shoulders Of Augray And he's a little unnerved but they begin the journey And right off the bat We actually learn that there's this beautiful gate Very smooth uh, Very enjoyable experience Long legs actually I think he described it How do you describe it uh, A cat how they put their feet down Very, very softly <laughs> very slowly it does say that in the text, but it makes me think of the Ministry of Silly Walks in Monty Python. I will include a link in the show notes. People need to watch it. Absolutely. Well, I, I probably need to help you uh, help you guys understand that one of the most important saints in the Catholic faith is Saint Christopher, 
who carries mm -hmm. Christ on his shoulder. And so people wear medals and things. And so you may want to look it up. And so I'm, I'm glad to help you out with, um, you know, with uh, uh, Catholic iconography and stuff. I'm here, to, I'm here for you. Christopher. Okay, we will look him up. <laughs> so what I want to do here in this section, because we have a decently long one where they're just on this journey, let's unpack a little bit of some of the stuff that they come across in this, this time as he's on his shoulders. So the first thing we see is, or hear, or read, is the landscape appears to become more hostile, barren, unforgiving. So very different than the Harasa experience. So why do you guys, I'm curious, and I don't want to reach too far as I always try to do. Is Lewis trying to communicate something here? I keep thinking about this in the metaphor of this journey of coming from the Harasa. Everything's provided for, everything's there. Uh, the ground has that plant that you can just eat when you want to. The water fills you up. And now he's in this more desolate, more barren. Yes, he has the help of the sorn. But like what? Is Lewis trying to communicate something here as he gets further away from that and closer towards the end goal that there's like this barren area? What do you guys think? Yes. Do you not remember reading your literature in ninth grade where they taught you about the you know, the, the uh, exposition and then the rising action and the conflict? and the falling mm -hmm. action and the conclusion. And so what we're getting literally as he's traveling up is we're 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 moving plot-wise towards the uh, towards the climax. And we've seen that Lewis is very deliberate with uh, his tone. And so he's I think kind of setting up. Remember this is his first real novel. And so I think that some of that is he's he's painting a little bit by numbers. Um, and that's reflected in his tone. I would also just add they're on the surface and they're getting very close to the heavens. Mm. And we're going to find out a little bit more of the backstory, both in this chapter and a little bit later, as to something that happened in the past. So mm. it, it's barren for a reason. Mm -hmm. But he is also getting closer to that heavenly influence, which she encountered on the spaceship. What's that? What's the reason again? It's more barren? Oh, well, we're going to find out a little bit later in this chapter that some things have happened. And t right near the end of the book, we'll find out a little bit more about that story. Okay. But since we're trying to read along with the readers, I don't just want to give away in the explanation because we haven't heard it all yet. That's fair. Hmm. I tried to read into it like the saint's journey. You know how you, you start out and your journey is a little bit easier. You have a whole bunch of assistants and then you go to the dark night of the soul period where it's a lot tougher on, that, on you, on the body and stuff, but you're getting closer. That doesn't necessarily mean you're further away from God, but in fact, it can be you're in the desert. You're getting closer. I was thinking of all that stuff. Probably reading too much into it. No, we're saying the same thing because the dark night of the soul, um, and I mean, it's a hero's journey as well. And that's, it's one of the basic plots, you know, of, of, of most books. And so, uh, yeah, he's, he's certainly struggling through this, but the reason, part of the reason why St. John of the Cross and others have the dark night of the soul and part of why, you know, Campbell and others describe it in the monomyth, kind of this initiation, the separation, the journey down into hell, and then the, you know, the struggle. Um, um, it, Lewis is writing a good story and mm -hmm. he, I think, knows instinctively what that story needs. And that's part of what he's providing here, I think. And when, here's the key thing, Andrew. Not only is he writing a good story, aren't all of those other stories pulling from the story? Not only that, they're tending toward the story, which is, of course, mm. you know, the same kind of arc that you get in Lewis's last novel. <laughs> oh, I still have a little alcohol left. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Happy to help. 
<laughs> you get one more reference, Andrew, and I'm all right. Good. All right. So now to what you were sort of talking about, David. We get a cleaner look. If you guys remember back many chapters back when he sees in the far off distance, I believe up in the mountains, if I'm saying this right, that cauliflower shape, we actually start to see this up close and personal. So what what is he seeing and and what do we learn about this and this other creature that came into this? Hmm. He's seeing the old forests of Malacandra. Because hmm. it turns out that the surface wasn't always so inhospitable. It was once warmer, there was air, and there was lots of creatures. And and this part of the narrative, it takes a real dark turn because mm-hmm. Augury says it's now a graveyard uh, and it's just full of bones of creatures that have died. Uh, and thousands of years ago, there was a, another kind of creature that lived there, a kind of bird. Mm-hmm. It's not explicitly said that this creature was Hanau. Uh, but I do think it's kind of implied because he yeah. refers to them as a people rather than simply a creature or an animal. Mm-hmm. And Ransom, this is obviously news to him. And so he wants to know, could Oyasa have prevented it? And Orgray says that he doesn't know, but basically nobody lives forever. He says, a world is not made to last forever, much less a race. Mm-hmm. Much less a race. It is not Meleldil's way. Hmm. Well, a couple of things to to consider with this. One, I wonder if it may have been a race of dragons, but not um, violent, you know, angry dragons. Right? Uh. But also, when you see this landscape that has the remnants of the past in it, what you hear is an echo of what Tolkien does all the time, right? And so... Even though the adventure is going along, you can see the the leftovers from the previous ages, this kind of obsolescence that's baked into the narrative. And I'm sure, I'm not sure, but I imagine that <laughs> even with The Hobbit and now in 37, 38, as Tolkien's beginning to write the next Lord of the Rings, um, I wonder if there isn't some of that, that you get these kind of layers of history and this sense that the story has always been going on. I also heard a Tolkienian echo, although that story doesn't come out for a decade, or may, the incident may not even be written. But this riding on the shoulder is, at least in some ways, reminiscent of um, of Marion Pippin riding on Treebeard. Mm-hmm. And so it seems a little Tolkienian here. Um, and you can maybe see some of their their early influences. I'm not saying this passage influenced Tolkien to bake in some some ancient you know ages. But they're certainly sitting there reading the book to each other. And these are the stories that kind of are part of the concoction that's cooking in, in all of them. So, so I think that there's at least part of that. Well, gentlemen, as the journey continues, we find the Sorns seem to be chiefly solitary creatures. And so they don't seem to have villages like the Harasa, which we just experienced him live life among, be a part of, be as you guys remember, like just be present. And so they seem to live chiefly in these caves and they appear to be involved in some kind of work, but Ransom doesn't seem to understand exactly what that entails yet. So they're getting closer to their destination. He's seeing all this around him. They begin to descend. They come upon three Sorns coming down towards them from an opposite slope. How does this interaction this scene affect Ransom's perception of the Sorns? Well, their lightness and their grace and the, the sunlight on their feathers, it completes 
the transformation in Ransom's mind, which has begun ever since he met Orgray, transferring the Sorns from being ogres to angels, or he also says titans, those are the giants in Greek mythology who are overthrown by the Olympian gods. Mm-hmm. And so he's now just viewing them in a different light. Once again, we have perception transformed. And he says, even the faces, it seemed to him, he had not seen aright. He had thought them spectral when they were only august. And his first human reaction to their length and severity of line and profound stillness of expression now appeared to him not so much cowardly as vulgar. So might Parmenides or Confucius look in the eyes of a Cockney schoolboy. And a Cockney schoolboy is someone who from East London. <laughs> well, and you also see that as he gets some time and familiarity with the Sorns, he grows to love them mm. and he sees them better. So what you see is the budding of Storge, right? And he's starting to see them for who they are, not who he fears that they are. So I remember the first day I, I traveled to Beijing, I went to teach uh, Shakespeare and poetry in a, in a Chinese um, high school. And so my first day in Beijing, it's jet lag, it's confusion, it's being in this country for the first time. And it was very hard for me to see the room fulls of faces. I had several classes of teenagers and it just all looked, you know, it was indistinguishable for me. By the second day as a high school teacher of many years, I'm like, oh, these are high school students and that one's the troublemaker and that one's the one who's the grade <laughs> grubber and this one. and the mass of faces turned into very distinct individual personalities. And it happened quite quickly, um, even in a country that was much more homogeneous than, than the one that I come from. And that was a great comfort. And that's some of what's happening, I think, here with, with Ransom. He's recognizing character. He's rec- recognizing distinctiveness. And he's, he's receiving what he's seeing, right? He's not trying to quantify it, right? It's he's looking along. He's not looking or, or he stopped looking along his fears and he started looking at who they really are and they're becoming, you know, personalities to him. And I imagine, like I said, if he had a couple more weeks with them, he may have favored the Sorns. I like that word receiving because Andrew, that brings me back to our, our conversation with Diana. Remember how she mentioned Lewis is attacking, attacking is probably a strong word, but some negative worldviews that are going on, using science fiction to attack some of these things. And so I'd mm-hmm. asked this question, I believe, you know, what is Lewis proposing is the right orientation of us in the world? And didn't use the word receiving, but said ransom is a really good template for how we are supposed to honestly shape ourselves to reality in a proper sense. An openness might have been the word that was in one of the essays, but like that, just an openness. Can you come with a curiosity, not a judgmental disposition or I know everything disposition or my worldview is a correct worldview? Can we come with an openness into life? And so there's obviously more to it than just that, but that I think is key. And Ransom shows that receiving very well. And in this passage, Ransom is going out of himself towards Mm. the other, right? Um, and he's seeing with other eyes. He's looking with the eyes of love, which is invested in the personhood of the other. And so mm-hmm. he's he's receiving, yes, um, instead of trying to use, he's, instead of he's abandoning his own qualifications of what's going on and just receiving what Maladil sends him. When we get to Paralandra, Tindadril talks about, you know, receiving the wave that Maladil sends. 
right? And he's just, he's going along with it. And what he's seeing is beauty and stateliness and grace. And that's because he's getting over himself. And instead of trying to fit them into his conception, he's trying to receive them and see who they are. And he's abandoning himself in this way that allows him not only clear sight, but love for the other. Mm -hmm. If Orwell did this, this book would be half, uh, half the length. And it's her refusal to do that. And it's our own refusal to, to do that that makes, that kind of engenders hate in the world. So wasn't even planning on it, but of course that it's there. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys seen too, when you were talking about his, his changing and falling in love with them sort of, or learning to love them? Have you guys seen yet A Man Called Otto? No. Oh, yeah. Oh, so there's a book, A Man Called Ooh. I had the book was good. Yeah, it was decent. It was good. I, whenever I go into something with expectations, that's going to be phenomenal. I just am always left disappointed. And so oh, like Ransom with his preconceived notions. It's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an openness to it being different than my expectations. Or while also, you know, the gods are terrible and awful and you can't see them as any other way. Andrew, I'm way out of alcohol at this point. We can't have any more references, man. <laughs> Let um, me help you out there. Yeah. Uh, you can drink for me. So, that movie, incredible movie, please watch it. He has the same thing. He's got these preconceived negative notions towards the family across the street and just they are destroyed. And it is so beautiful in the love that's developed. I mean, just mm, 10 out of 10 movie, 10 out of 10 movie. Mm. Anyways, back to the text, gentlemen. So they're ending the journey. He comes across this sorn that appears to be like an old sorn, sort of, if we want to use that language, capital O. And... First, he's kind of wondering if there's a hierarchical structure. And rather than saying that, what he identifies is seems to be like a teacher-pupil type structure. And so he he comes across to these multiple Sorns. And so he enters into this place uh, of the old Sorn. And interestingly enough, they have this very deep conversation. You would think that it might be about Sorn history or the universe or all this other stuff where we're about to learn a whole bunch of life lessons. We do learn an incredible lesson, but it's not about the greater planets and stuff. So what, what does the conversation focus on? Well, there's a Socratic interrogation is how I've decided to call it because <laughs> these guys are the philosophers, but uh, they're, they, they're asking questions and persistent questions. They want to know about Earth. They want to know about Thulcandra. Mm -hmm. And we're told that they work systematically through the geology of Earth, its present geography, Flora, fauna, human history, languages, politics, and art. And they are really paying attention. They are deriving a lot, a lot of information from his answers about related topics. Couldn't that go with what we were just talking about before too? Another way of communicating how we're supposed, our disposition is supposed to be intellectually curious, not mm -hmm. judgmental. Like notice that they have the chance and they could be spewing out all this truth. They're wise individuals or swords. Instead, they've got this creature here and like we're gonna ask him a whole bunch of questions i love that <laughs> and it's what lewis says about meeting a truly humble person he said he won't seem at first to be really humble Ooh. but he'll just be full of curiosity about you right hmm. and so there's all of that i i can't help but notice that you skipped over the ideas about books of poetry um, but we'll just uh, <laughs> we'll wait until you read some more until you uh, until you find that good enlightenment too <laughs> well, well, I do think that actually is a little bit important because it, it's jarring to us. When we think of knowledge, we think of books. And we d discover that, at least among the Sorn, uh, the Saroni, and the Hrosa, memory is prized over books. 
And that seems to have an impact not only on poetry, but also on intellectual learning. They say it's mm -hmm. better to remember. And there's this kind of funny line that struck a, struck a chord to me. Ransom said, well, you know, wouldn't valuable things be lost? And they replied that Oyasa always remembered them and he'd bring them to light if he saw fit. Mm -hmm. And that actually reminds me of a line in the Quran when they were afraid that they were going to be losing stuff. It's like, no, no, he'll, God will always give us something either, either better or he'll remind you. Mm. But there, there is that idea of, again, providence. They have complete trust uh, that they will be provided for. But also this idea that uh, learning isn't just uh, squirreled away in books. There's a wonderful line from St. John Chrysostom. I mentioned him, I think, in the last episode about his Easter sermon. Uh, he said that the Gospels weren't given that we should enclose them in books, but they should be engraved upon our hearts. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why I try and keep getting rid of my books, because I need to remind myself that what's important here is what comes into me, not what's just sitting on my shelf. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Mm. And what you see here, I think, is a corrected vision of a proper relationship with books. Now, I've got thousands of books in my house. And some of that is a move against the kind of, you know, the kind of technology that we that we grasp for. And Lewis talks about this in De Descriptio Ne Temporum, you know, about the technological age made the newest thing the best. Whereas all before that, the older thing was the best until about the late 1800s. And what you see in Malacandra is a proper relationship with books, right? We value memory. We also have books. And I don't need to throw memory out because I've got a phone and can, you know, can record it. <laughs> and so there's this balance between memorization and having it in a book that I think is really, uh, is really touching. And it's just another sign that this world is far better off than our own. Hmm. And interestingly, Ransom does decide to be truthful in this exchange. When the Frosser mm. interviewed him, he held back a little bit. Whereas here he says he decided from the outset that he would be quite frank, for he now felt that it would not be Hanau. And here I think this is another clue that Hanau relates to virtue. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't be right um, mm -hmm. if he held stuff back and he decides that he's going to be forthright. And we hear that they were astonished at when he, they heard about human history, about war, slavery, prostitution, and uh, as Lewis says in Mere Christianity, all of the things that uh, the horrible history of mankind, as we try and find uh, something other than God to fulfill us. Mm. This is also some of what Lewis is setting out to do. And when you were talking before, Matt, it reminded me of one of Lewis's really kind of moral purposes in writing science fiction is to correct the notion that the alien must be either terrible or servile. Right. Mm. And so he kind of finds this balanced picture and he has poetry and essays where he's like, why would, why should we go to space and fling Birkenau and Auschwitz, you know, on these, on these people? Why are we so superior that we should colonize other races? And so he's correcting the kind of human view of what, what we should do with space. And he's pointing out that Malacandra in some ways is far, uh, far better off than we are. And, I think that's part of what uh, the argument that Lewis is make, making, especially against the British Interplanetary Society and, um, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, the, um, the author, Arthur C. Clarke. And so he's, 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 he's moving against British Interplanetary Society and Arthur C. Clarke 
and Lewis was against colonizing or visiting other planets. And Lewis and Clark were actually correspondents. Lewis and Clark. There we go. <laughs> um, Clark and Lewis exchanged letters and Lewis invited uh, or Clark invited Lewis to come and speak to the British Interplanetary Society. And he said, our goals are not the same. And I don't think that we should go out there. And so here he's kind of making a fictive apologetic for how we should treat not only other races, but also other planets. And I think it's it's really, uh, it's, it's quite brilliant here. Well, and, and I want to go back to David, that comment you just made of Lewis, when he mentioned that human history can be us trying to fill that hole with something other than God. That's quote of the week here was this section, but I love how he phrases it here using the, the God language rather than the actual language he said here. It's not only us trying to fill ourself with something other than God, it's us trying to become little gods to some mm -hmm. degree. And that's a, a packs a little bit of a bigger punch of one way it's like, oh, we naively are making the mistake, which there's a lot of truth in that statement for sure. Don't get me wrong. But there's also a, a slightly more diabolical so side to it where we're trying to make ourselves gods to some degree, again, unintelligently by putting our will above everything else and our ego. And I kind of like that phrasing because it packs a bit more of a punch. It's grasping. Mm-hmm. It's like, dang, I can't, I can't just brush it off to, oh, it's just a naive mistake of me just not realizing what will really make me happy. It's like, it, it just seems more intentional, actionable, um, well, I need to own it. <laughs> and, you know, this is what you're talking about. Lewis says, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. Hmm. Right. It is because they have no Oyasa. Yes. It is because yes. every one of them wants to be a little Oyasa himself. Mm -hmm. And this is also the medieval worldview. They saw hierarchy and they saw it as a good thing. Mm -hmm. mm, good one, David. And in its absence, there's chaos. We're, we're pressing up on time, gentlemen. That's my fault is the uh, Matsian flexibility. <laughs> Flacidity? <laughs> Plasticity. <laughs> <laughs> Neuroplasticity, Matsian plasticity. I like it. Math hits the bushy and irresponsibility. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I like it. It's, a good it's all love, Matt. I hope you know it's all love. Oh, I love it. I love a good roasting. <laughs> I had a I had a buddy who hung out with a different one of my friends, and he was like, "Man, you guys roast each other." I'm like, "It's great. I love it." Final sentence. I was kind of curious with you guys. Same same with the last one. The bleakest comments. You know, what, what, what do you guys make of this? He thought only of the old force of Malacandra and of what it might mean to grow up seeing always so few miles away a land of color that could never be reached and had once been inhabited. You know what? Is he trying to say there's a longing and a yearning? This is that desolate cauliflower shaped that used to have the birds. This is a reminder. Like, what is he trying to say here of that sentence? What do you make of it? I guess better way to put that. I can't help but think that if you had a daily reminder when you looked up uh, to the hills, <laughs> I'm thinking of the psalm, uh, I look, look to the hills, where does my salvation come comes from the Lord? That's in the lectionary for today. No. Really? Dang. Oh, yeah. Psalm 121, 122, and 123 are in the lectionary for today. We're recording, by the way, friends, on uh, March 28th. <laughs> All right. I'm vibing. I'm going to carry through on this then. Uh, so... 
the psalmist looks to the hills for salvation, but they look to, to the hills and see something terrible that has happened. Mm. We as yet don't know what that actually was, but I think that would serve as a daily warning, a daily reminder of the fragility of life, the gift of life, and uh, yeah, perhaps a warning of not to repeat past mistakes. Do you think they would see it as terrible though? Maybe. Because the harassa would are, clearly don't seem to seem death as a negative. Like, oh, I feel like they'd look <laughs> up and be like, well, that's just what it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's epic. It's beautiful. Let's write a poem about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were probably gallant in something and, you know, I don't know. There's, I'm trying to find the quote right now. There's this, a quote in Surprise by Joy where he talks about the mountains that were so far off that he could never get to them and they filled him with longing. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was the mountains of Morn, but I but I'm having trouble finding it. So you guys keep chatting. I think it if I can find it, it'd be worth having in the podcast. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. I like for the question of the week to completely switch what I had written and switch to David's of of us three co-hosts. No, no, no. Which we can't do this yet. They haven't encountered the fifth or tricky. If they're reading along, they haven't encountered the fifth or tricky, so they don't know they're the best yet. Yeah. Anyways, I'm I actually liked your question. I thought it was really good. And it actually ties in with the title because we didn't actually explain that. Gods and monsters. So mm -hmm. this title was chosen for this chapter because the monstrous sorns have now been converted in his eyes, in Ransom's eyes. Mm -hmm. And he's discovered that the real problem with the silent planet, with Earth, is that we want to be our own gods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like, I like David, we're going to save, yes, I like doing this question here. I was mistaking that because we were supposed to also record the other chapter, which I had read, and it has the fiffle triggy stuff in it, so I was mistaken. You're correct. I want them to have full information when they diagnose us and categorize <laughs> us. And so for the question of the week this week, guys, is what are some practices in your own life? And, and if you actually answer us some really good ones, we'll read these on air because I think it's going to be really helpful to the Pines with Jack community that keep you from becoming a little Oyarsa. You know, in our spiritual journey, so much of it is to prevent our desire to become little gods and to put our will ahead of God's will. And as someone who's given myself a two out of 10 for that, I could use some advice here of, of what you guys have successfully done to surrender that. What is that? What are those practices, those rhythms in your life that you have done that have allowed you to um, say no to your desire, your ego, your will and say yes to the capital W will. Well, and some of this, I think, comes from a quote that Lewis writes down of his own in Joy Davidman's um, uh, copy of Lewis's second second best book, um, The Great Divorce. And he says, and it's all reality is iconoclastic. As Ransom gets closer to Oyarsa, who's an archangel and constitutionally divine, and he gets closer to doing what God called him to do through his costly obedience. What happens is, and you know, the quote in Joy Davidman's Great Divorce says, there are three images, Lewis says, I, there are three images that I must continually forsake and replace with better ones. My image of myself, my image of my neighbor, and my image of God, right? And so what he's doing is exchanging his images for the truth. And he's seeing them more clearly because he has abandoned himself to obedience. It's the kind of vision that Orwell would have had had she done it, had she done that herself. But she can't see past herself. There you go. Have a sip. 
And it's when we can't see past ourselves that we begin to characterize and caricature uh, others. And it's when I get over myself and really try to enter in and understand people for who they are, that I can really not only begin to see them, but begin to love them and apply to them the kind of grace and mercy that we all deserve. And maybe in seeing others, circle back around and, uh, and see myself more generously the way God sees me as his own beloved. That's a really good way to finish this, gentlemen. Thank you, Andrew. You brought the jokes and the wisdom this episode. And the whiskey. <laughs> I hear the call for final drinks. And so we want to first thank our audio engineer, Taylor Schroll, who's crushing it in life, essentially editing every single Catholic podcast known to mankind. If they're the big ones, he's editing them. And we want to also thank our Patreon supporters who allow us to pay our audio engineer to record our episode. Matt James, Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joel, Deborah one, Deborah two, future Deborah three. I know you're coming. Manifestation. <laughs> Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. Guys, we really thank you for listening to this. We uh, keep you in our prayers. And this has been a gift this ministry has. And you know, if you like this, subscribe, review us, rate us. Those are always greatly welcomed. And most importantly, tell a friend, as I see David highlighting that. And so, gentlemen, please join us next time. When we'll be going further up and further in. Chung Kao. Chung Kao. Chung Kao. Chung Kao.